Welcome to Relational Mission, A Way of Life, a podcast series where we discuss what it means to be a family of churches on mission with God to be globally fruitful, crossing all boundaries to reach nations, make disciples and plant locally led churches. In this episode, we're discussing the book Relational Mission, A Way of Life with the author Mike Betts. Welcome to another podcast. I'm Isaac Butcher, your host alongside Adam Voke. And as normal, we're interviewing the author of the book in question, Mr. Mike Betts. Uh, today, we're looking at chapter five, A Church for a Broken World. Now, before we get into the deeper conversation, I've got an icebreaker to kick us off. So imagine you're stuck on a desert island, guys, and that's it for the rest of your life. You're stuck there and there's, there's no vegetation except for one tree. But to your amazement, um, that tree produces your favourite food ingredient. So what is that food ingredient? Oh, gosh. When you say ingredient, do you mean like uh, not an actual... So it can't be chicken madras. Oh, that's a shame. Uh, it could be chilli or chicken. Okay, yeah, you could have ch- a chicken tree. You could have a chicken you could have tree. have a chicken tree. <laughs> I, can't, okay. I can't pick my burgers then. That's what I would have gone for. Mm-hmm. Burger fruit. Gosh. You could have a burger tree. Yeah, you could you'd get away with a burger tree. Oh, I would I would go for that then. Yeah, I think I'd have I'd I'd have sort of nice nice healthy natural good quality meat, Isaac. I know you're a, a nutrition expert, so sort of nice <laughs> pre-prepared good quality low-hanging meat fruit. <laughs> mm. Meat fruit. Yes. Gosh, it's um spoiled for choice for me. I think in turn, I, I, I'd go for a, a cod fillet tree because I do like the fish and chips. Very nice. If I I'm didn't... allowed to sort of think outside the box, a bit of a sort of a Salvador Dali way of thinking, then uh, a, a surrealist tree, I think a cod fillet. Very yeah. good. <laughs> you, you, could have gone, you could have gone fishing though, Mike. Uh, yeah, but if it's hanging off a tree, then it's just a lot easier than all that faffing, faffing around, sitting there waiting for something to happen. No, just go pick up the tree. Yeah, very good. I was trying to think about what what I would have, um, and yeah, I'd probably go for something like plantain, which mm. does naturally grow on trees anyway. And what was the other thing? Um, rose bananas. I don't know if you've ever had a rose banana. No, I've never heard of that at all. They are the best banana you'll ever eat. Wow, never heard of them. When no. you say plantain, do you mean the stuff that grows out of the grass? No, no, but that's an interesting herb in itself. But no, I'm talking yes. about the, um, the 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 banana, the one that's in the banana family. Ah, uh, right, gotcha. Yeah. I was going to say, that didn't sound very appetising. Yeah, because you can have them when they're green and then they're more starchy yeah. or you can wait for them to ripen and then you can have them um, less starchy yeah. and more sweet. Okay. Lovely. <laughs> Nearly time for my second lunch. Yeah. <laughs> So today we're on chapter number five, A Church for the Broken World, which for me is just like a natural outworking of a relationship with Jesus that, you know, what becomes important for God becomes important for us. And um, so to kick us off, I'm going to hand over to to Adam, who's got a great question to begin. As we kick off, Mike, it would be good to give a bit of definition to what we mean by the poor. So in the chapter, you you ask this, you say it's reasonable to ask who are the poor and this chapter's called Church for a Broken World. So it's, it's obviously bigger than just people who don't have any money and we're trying to help people. So what are we talking about here, Mike? Well, I think that, that as you say, there is a very big spectrum to all this. So there is <clears throat> what I would call the empowerment of the poor, which is... And the definition of poor I, I work with in my head is anyone who's been robbed of choices that they should have. So it's not just about financial insufficiency or that sort of thing. People can be socially poor. They can be relationally poor. They can be uh, physically poor. They, you know, they can be economically poor. So there's, there's all of that side to it. But the other aspect of being a church for a broken world is to recognise that everything in the world is broken. 
doesn't mean it's all, all as bad as it could be because God has given common grace. So praise God for doctors and nurses and teachers and business people who are not Christians, but who do tremendous things to make people's lives better through economic development, educational development, health development, etc., etc. But this is about saying we can bring godly values into every sector of society, whether it's in the arts or business or education or health. There are ways to express the heart of God and the way he likes things done, the way that he would approve of. So you can run a business on godly principles. You can do education with a godly uh, attitude and, and seeking to represent God well as his ambassadors. You can give empowerment to the poor, those who haven't got choices, by giving them choices so that they can then you know, have the same freedoms of choice that, that we would all want for ourselves. So it's a very, very big, broad brushstroke of speaking into the fact that everything is broken and will, to some degree, always remain broken until Jesus returns. But we can make, um, and Jesus said, the poor you'll always have with you. So there's always going to be a mountain to climb. But we can bring about godly influence in all the different domains of life. Okay. And so it makes sense for us as as believers, because we understand that the world is fallen and that affects all areas of life and society. But uh, does it make it sound a little bit down in the dumps? Because if we say society's broken, is a broken world, all, all business is broken, everything in the arts is broken, um, everything in uh, media's broken, everything in education's broken, it, won't, won't we just sound like we're trying to fix everything and how, how can we act, really fix all that? Are we saying we're going to be taking over the world? So unless... Unless Christians, the kingdom of God takes over and has dominion, which I know some Christian movements and churches would see it like that, Christians are taking over. And it's only when we take over everything, then it's all going to be fixed. But it sounds a bit kind of almost negative toward the world. People who hear that might think, what? who do they think there are, these wacky Christians? What do you think about that approach well, I think the first thing to say is, I suppose, theologically, I think Jesus didn't come to redeem culture. He came to redeem the church. So the church is the primary vehicle and the primary focus of what the purposes of God are in the world. He's re redeeming a people for himself who in some ways are an alternative society to society around us. And so we mustn't mix up his primary redemptive purpose, which is the church, into thinking he wants to redeem culture in the same way. He doesn't. Culture, in that sense, can't be redeemed unless it comes under the lordship of Christ. And I personally even just am cautious now about where I use the phrase kingdom of God, because I think the kingdom of God actually is where Jesus rules in the heart of an individual. That's where you can say the kingdom of God has come. I think some of the, the things we've put the phrase kingdom of God to, where Christians get involved in things, actually is expressing the heart of God rather than the kingdom of God. Because, you know, Jesus isn't ruling over a particular business, but he might be ruling over the hearts of the people involved in the business. So I think there are distinctives there. I think the second thing is where, where God's salvation touches the life of an individual, they will naturally have an outflow of godliness about them so that they will make the world a better place by the way they behave, the way they talk, the way they think, the way they engage with others. And the, 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 the benefit of Christians engaging in society is that they will, if they're living godly lives, they will genuinely be salt and light. Jesus said, you're the light of the world. You know, you will, you will make a difference and you're my ambassadors. So I think in every area we can we can make everyone's life better by being Christians in, in whatever we're called to do. And I think the, the third thing you touched on is about is everything broken? That sounds can sound a bit gloomy. Well, I, I once heard sort of a very good illustration of even understanding the fall of man, a bit like if we went to Rome and we looked at the Colosseum, we would be able to see it as this magnificent building. And you can see the glory of what it once was, but you can see now that it's fallen into disrepair. It's a shadow of what it was, but the, the structure of its glory is still there. And I think that's very much about like the fall of man. When you look at human beings, 
you can still see the glory of God in them. You can still see the image of God. You can still see some of the tremendous aspects of God's nature and character through his common grace to mankind. You can see what we were. You can see what we're supposed to be. But yet we also see the dysfunction, the fallenness, the sinfulness, the things that make us not live up to the potential it looks like we could do. And that's, I think, where we have to... It's not about being gloomy. It's about being realistic that without Christ, redemption back to the former glory, as it were, of what we should be as, as God, people made in the image of God and relating to God, it's just not possible. We're always going to be finding brokenness, even though there are very, very good people who are not Christians who do wonderfully good things because of the common grace of God to mankind and because the image of God is still in there somewhere. You know, it's still this Colosseum, you know, a magnificent ruin, but people do amazing things who are not Christians and praise God for them. That's um, that's very interesting, Mike. And I just wanted to pick up on, in terms of like the world being a broken world and in terms of us us being involved as Christians in areas such as uh, politics, um, how much should the church try to be involved in politics? Is it good enough just for a a politician who's a Christian to have support in terms of uh, prayer and um, being a part of a church? Or should the church actually be um, speaking out against, against sort of political things that are occurring around the world that perhaps are disempowering people because we were talking about poverty as some, something where the power of choice and freedoms that sh- should naturally be there being removed and of course in in the coronavirus situation we're within there's a lot of people not happy about a lack of freedom and there's a lot of people r- raising up and saying we're having our rights removed it's not for the government to to take away our freedom and our rights and, and so this is a I guess as a as a a thin line here and a bit of a grey area. Yeah, I mean, there's lots of questions in your one question there, uh, which are all very, very um, pertinent for the season we're living in. Uh, I'll, I'll try and do my best with 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 some of the key themes there. I I've always taken the view, firstly, that as as a, a leader in church life, I don't ever preach politics from the pulpit or podium or whatever, desk, whatever. I don't do that because my role is to preach the gospel, not to um, not to put my, forward my own political views. So I don't ever talk about politics publicly uh, in my role as a church leader. don't believe that's for me to do. Um, also, I don't really believe that there is a political right or wrong in terms of ideological thought. So God isn't either left-wing or right-wing. So I've always taken the view that Christians... Unless they are, unless they feel called into politics, in which case, be part of whatever party you feel God's leading you to. Fine, and seek to bring godly influence in that party. But I've always uh, maintained a view that Christians, and I would preach this, that Christians should be floating voters, because our allegiance is first of all to the kingdom of God and to Jesus. And then secondly, we then vote according to what most matches up with godly principles that we can see in Scripture when we look at the manifesto. And that will change from party to party, season to season. What I'm noticing at the moment, which gives me great concern with the abundance of the Internet as it is now, is that Christians seem to be very, very vocal at times about politics, more vocal than they are about the gospel. And that concerns me because... We are to pray for those in authority. And the reason is, it says there in Timothy, it says pray for those in authority that we might live peaceful and godly lives, in all, and quiet lives, sorry, peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness, because God wants all people to come to a knowledge of the truth. In other words, God wants an environment where the gospel flourishes. And that's what the focus of our activity and our prayer should be all about. So when we get sidelined into political things that are, that do not have the Gospels flourishing as their main goal, we will get taken down rabbit holes that are, they are not our concern. They are not our concern. Our concern is that the Gospel flourishes and we should create environments so that that happens as best as possible. Now, whenever the Gospel does flourish, injustice is solved. The poor are empowered businesses done with righteousness and justice, etc., etc. There is an effect, whenever you read any accounts of revival, there is always 
a knock-on effect when people come to Christ in large numbers, you find legislation changing uh, so that uh, people's rights are protected. Even the RSPCA, Wellbeing of Animals, came out of, um, I think it was Shaftesbury, was it? I think it was Shaftesbury or Wilberforce, can't remember who founded it. Even John Wesley said that care of animals was an important part of his mandate for reforming society. I mentioned that as an aside because we tend to think it was just about people. No, God cares about all sorts of aspects of his creation and about how we function as a planet and how we function in, in everyday life. And you find that when people get right with God in their hearts, they start to behave correctly. Legislation is passed. Businesses are run on godly values. Education has a holistic nature to it. Healthcare, prison reform, all of those things flowed out of moves of God in the past but they were never the primary aim. The primary aim was to bring people to Christ. What, what do you think, Mike, going back to the comment you made earlier about the primary, the primary um, call is for the redemption of the church, um, but I wouldn't want people to think that, therefore, God's not interested in creation because there's, a, there's lots of scriptures that do talk about the redemption of the universe and about creation... Um, itself somehow being renewed and redeemed and we're not going off up to some heaven there's going to be a renewed uh, heaven and earth that will be joined together and so um, that's not what you were saying is it you you're you're not saying that it's mostly about people people are important that the universe is the kind of world is secondary because that might that might make someone some think what's the point then because if it's all going to be finished it's all going to be wrapped up. It's mostly about people. Why bother wasting our efforts with animals and, you know, who cares what happens with business? It's all going anyway. We, we've got to see souls saved. Let's not waste our time uh, with politics, business, anything. Fine, do what you like to keep yourself going and have a rest and make money. But come on, it's, it's about souls here, isn't it? Not about um, tampering with the world as it is now. Well, I think the thing is that... Everything is interconnected in life, isn't it? So if we, if we to take a, to take a very current example, if we were to bring the gospel to someone, but then we didn't have um, at personal, local, national, and global level a real thoughtfulness to do with issues like global warming and stewardship of the planet's resources, then all we're doing is actually creating more problems for the very people that we're bringing to Christ. And we're creating poverty, we're creating hardship, we're creating suffering. So I don't think it's about keeping the world going because it's got a future. It's all going to be remade and renewed. It's about stewardship of what we've got now so that we bless people, we help people, we look after people. If burning fossil fuels at a ridiculous rate in the globalised Western world or even globalised now, you know, huge economies like China and other places is leading to floods in, I don't know, some of the Cambodia or Thailand or places, Bangladesh, places that are impacted by that. Well, surely the Christian responsibility is to bring influence and change to the world, the way the world, the way the planet is managed. Not because we're thinking, well, as long as you're saved, it doesn't really matter. No, it's because we're saying, no, we want to bless people. We want people to live in a world that is um, uh, functioning for them as best as it can. But we do have this other thing, you know, we live in a world that has seen the fall and the curse, you know, from the ground thistles and thorns will grow. So we're always managing a decline. The world is in bondage to decay. And I think that's the thing they have to bear in mind. We do our best to bless and help people recognising that we are on a trajectory for Jesus' return. And that's where I think Christians can lose the plot a bit. We put, make secondary issues, which are important, into primary issues, issues which are not important. What does it profit a man if he gains the whole world but loses his soul? There's these, these primary things that have got to be just kept in our vision, I think, the whole time. Now, I'm a strong advocate of Church for a Broken World. That's why it's in the book, because I think working with the poor, empowering the poor, godly principles in the business place, influence in the arts, I think they're massively important. I love all that. But I don't ever want to take my eye off the fact that it's the gospel that is the, the primary thing in bringing people to Christ. Do you think that 
there's a danger where that could be seen as the gospel. So I know um, in church history in the 1800s, um, there was a lot of works began and you've mentioned some of these great characters and it's it's wonderful went on but that that became known as a social gospel in some quarters and some would say well that's not the gospel that that's something different that's a that's an outworking whereas others would say no it is the gospel they go together um so is 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 doing good works the gospel and is there a danger where doing good works in society might actually divert people it might it might almost deceive people by thinking i'm doing the work of the kingdom and the gospel when actually souls are not being touched with with the work of jesus on the cross and his resurrection well i do think there's some there are some complicating factors aren't there as you uh, as as could be noted quite well all of us have got different gifting biases and that obviously can can push us in certain ways. So some of us are more, I don't know, geared to mercy kind of ministries. I mean, that's, you know, Romans 12 talks about those with the gift of mercy. So I think there are those who are naturally leaning that way. Others perhaps have got evangelistic gifting, going to be thinking about, you know, people's eternal um, destination and well-being, which could make them then forget a little bit about the day-to-day life and the here and now. So I think all of us have got to make sure that we have a very well-balanced, robust theological perspective from which we develop our doctrine and our practice. So it's not about personal preference. It's about what is a biblical plumb line. Now, I felt, you know, if I just give my own personal testimony, I don't have a natural bias to hands-on mercy ministry. Like, I'd be useless in, in, I don't know, trying to care for people I, I, you know if I was in like a, I can imagine if I was caring for someone sort of in a nursing capacity they'd probably be worse after I'd finished them better because I, I just haven't got the skills or I, I don't know what people need or whatever but I have got a gift of leadership that God's given me and I felt that I felt God speak to me right at the beginning of relationship uh, relational mission forming and I felt he said to me I want you to keep empowerment of the poor central to everything you do and I thought to myself well what, what do I do then because I'm not I'm not you know Mother <laughs> Teresa or Jackie Pullinger or not you know I don't have the skills to do some of these things but I felt him say no I've given you a gift of leadership you can make things happen if you want to you can make things happen and as I started to explore that a bit more I realized no I can actually because if I notice something and then find the people who can make it happen then it actually happens, not because I've got the skills, but because I've found the people who've got the skills to make something happen. Where I need to be obedient is by recognising it must be done. Do not forget the poor. You know, it was an apostolic injunction that was put on Paul, and he said, well, it's the very thing I'm keen not to do. I don't want to forget the poor. And Paul, Paul wasn't particularly skilled in mercy ministry, but he did give diary time to make sure that an offering was delivered to the to the poor, you know, so he put some of his own time and his own ministry allocation of time and, and focus into alleviation of uh, of poverty for the poor. So the point I'm trying to make is every single one of us has got some gift that if we leverage it to empower the poor or to help bring about transformation of brokenness in, in a broken world, that is not only obedient to God's heart, it's also demonstrating the fact that you don't have to be a specialist. This is not a specialism. It's something we should all be doing. Where it can sadly go wrong is you get caring for the poor going off on its own trajectory or gospel proclamation going off on its own trajectory. Whereas those two things are supposed to be, it's like, the God, it's like James's epistle, you know, you show me your faith, but, you know, you say you haven't got any works, well, then it's not real faith. You know, there, there, there's the, the, we've got to live out the heart of God, haven't we? We've got to demonstrate the heart of God. And I've tried to do that personally with my own life, you know, with, with as I've had opportunity around me just to do that, you know, to try and give personal attention to people or situations around me where I can somehow develop a, I don't know, a lifestyle of wanting to empower the poor or be generous in certain ways to help people, you know, um, as I think we all should. I've spent quite a lot of time in Sri Lanka, Mike, and... 
One of the things that grabbed my heart when I was first there was the, the poverty in some of the areas that had been affected by the tsunami that occurred quite a few years back. I did a bit of uh, sort of um, fundraising. I went out there and I sort of donated pe- money directly to people in a village and saw, saw things get changed. And at the time, I, I, I wanted to tell them about Jesus, but I wasn't feeling in, in the place where I could just come in and, and preach to these people. And, and since then, I, I kind of look back and I kind of think to myself, yeah, they were really poor. At the same time, they all had big smiles and they all seemed quite happy because there was a great sense of community there. And I, and I look back and I, and I do have a sense of regret because the, the poverty that I didn't address, the biggest poverty in their life was the lack of a relationship with God. And so, you know, if I could go back in time, my approach would be completely different. You know, that's something that I, I guess I've sort of had revelation about in my own walk with God and, and, and ventures. But is there any kind of a, approach in terms of preparing people, in terms of um, helping people to recognise as well? Yes, there is a, a monetary sense of being poor. You know, perhaps we do need to give somebody food before we tell them about Christ. But it's, it comes, it's essential as part of the packet. Is, is the, the lack of a relationship uh, with Jesus. Yeah, I mean, it's, it is a delicate one, isn't it? Because we do, when we express God's heart to people and we love them unconditionally, we serve them unconditionally, we bless them unconditionally, it really is that, unconditionally, which means that we're not doing it just to get a response from them in terms of just kind of, um, I don't know, using using sort of alleviating poverty in order to earn the right to preach the gospel. Because it can feel, that can make us somewhat hard-hearted to people suffering, because I think there is something just genuinely in God that likes to bless people and do them good. And to, to he doesn't like suffering. He feels compassion when he, when he sees it. And it's almost like that, that, that is, that, that's a thing in itself. That's, a, that's an overflow of God's heart, isn't it? Kindness, mercy, compassion. And I think it takes, a, it takes some careful thought to extract that from also then, the, or not to extract, but to then build properly upon the compassion we, move for, we feel for someone suffering to then feel a compassion for their eternal condition, which is an, also an extension of our care for them. Um, and I think depending on what culture you come from, depending on what gift mix you've got, I mean, some evangelists will just go in there and they can just share the gospel with anybody from, from you know, a, a, a starting stand, you know, just get going straight away. Others of us need to just build a little bit more relationship with someone, feel we've got earned the right a bit more, for others, it might be learning a few cross-cultural things before we come in with any, you know, communication because we might feel we just don't understand the people or their culture or their environment well enough and we might miscommunicate. So your Sri Lankan example is one case in point. Before Paul preached in Athens, he walked around for some time observing, listening. Uh, he wanted to understand the culture before he spoke into it. So I think there's all, there's a very, very complex, complex web of communication and compassion that's got to go on together. I suppose the key thing in it all that I suppose I'd want to get the message over in answer to these questions is we we must care for the poor and empower them. We must bring godly influence into all aspects of human uh, human life and society, but we must never do that in a way that's then devoid of the primary concern that we have that people come to know Jesus or at least have the opportunity to consider the claims of Christ if they choose not to respond to that then we still bless them we still want to do them good we still want to demonstrate God's unconditional love to them um, as you say past moves of God the social gospel can take over uh, and the gospel gets lost but likewise I, I also know of moves of God in the past that have become so centred on, you know, you come out and be a separate, you are a peculiar people, you know, we're a society outside of the world, therefore don't have anything to do with them, to the, to the point where some teaching in some sort of more, more um, restricted sort of Christian communities would be, you know, if you've got a gifting from God in, say, I don't know, mathematics or science, well, that's of no interest whatsoever, all that matters is the gospel, you, you can't use your skills to benefit society, don't even bother. 
So you've got these polarising things that have, have, have happened through church history. And I think it's a both and, really. And do you think there's a priority? Is it more important to love and care for the church and the poor, however we define that in the church or in society? Which comes first? Well, my governing verse, if I have to have, I don't like proof text, so the, the, one that, the one that I would allow myself in this is Galatians 6.10, where it says, and, and to me this is the agenda, it says, as you have opportunity, do good to everybody, but especially to the household of faith. Now, to me, that summarises the whole agenda. So as you have opportunity, we can't fix everything, we can't touch everybody's need, but God will give us individually and as a family of churches and as local churches, he will give us unique opportunities that other people haven't got, unique contacts in different nations or with our neighbours or with friends or people that other... We have opportunity. So as you have opportunity, do good to everyone. So that is bless society, bless people, whether they're Christians or not, just bless them. Do good, be salt and light, be an influence in the world for good. Do good to everyone, but especially to the household of faith. In other words, our primary focus must be on empowering the poor where they're Christians and where those, you know, so if we're looking to start businesses up in devastated areas, I want to empower Christians to be able to start Christian businesses or businesses, they're not Christian businesses, Christians in business, put it that way, uh, because that's the priority. But if there's an overspill, so we can bless everyone, let's do that. I think of a project we've just done uh, working with Edward Burria in Kenya, where we've drilled this borehole into a community of about 7,000 people in the village around there. They're not all Christians, but they're all blessed. But we did it because we wanted to bless the church that was based there, because it was from them that the request came. And we had opportunity. So to me, that ticks all three boxes. In your book, Mike, you talk about um, using culture and creative arts to communicate the gospel and to provide a clear presentation of the nature and character of God, which is good. I guess it's a bit of a question mark over some things, whether you can define them as Christian and how beneficial they are. There are, there could be like things in, in a lot of Christian homes that don't paint the, the, a picture of the true nature of God. They could perhaps paint a, a picture of, of a false God, you could say. You know, just to be clear that I'm talking about things that perhaps the majority of Christians accept without question into their homes. So it could be movies, it could be music. And, you know, you see people on social media glorifying different things and posting different clips and different images. And, you know, in terms of what the church should and shouldn't be endorsing, is there a place for the church to be teaching the congregation about these kind of things? Um, and is there a point where you overstep the mark and become mm. too legalistic? Well, I've always thought the... Um verse where it says you know find out what pleases the lord is is a good one to sort of um use when you're, you're teaching or preaching on these matters so um over the years number of numbers of controversial issues have come up where people say what do you think about this what should the church say about this so i don't know years ago it was the life of brian as a film or harry potter in recent days and people say or drinking alcohol or you know, watching this film or that film, or uh, there was a recent thing just came up about Game of Thrones or whatever, and someone was doing a big thing on Twitter. How can you possibly say you're a Christian if you watch that? Sort of thing. All sorts of these kinds of questions come up. Now, I've always said I am never going to, from the front, from a from a position of teaching, I'm never going to say this is okay, this isn't. I'm never going to do that. Why? Because I want to tr help people train their own consciences to find out what pleases the Lord. Because we all have a different conscience bandwidth. And in the same way as when Paul was talking to people who were, some of whom were eating food that had been sacrificed to demons in the idol temples, and those who wouldn't touch it with a barge pole, he was saying, look, if you're offended by it, don't eat it. If you're not offended by it, well, Eat it, but don't eat it in the presence of those who are offended, because they're going. To, you know, you're going to you're going to offend the weaker brother's conscience. And Paul said, "Doesn't really matter to me whether I eat food that's, you know, been sacrificed to idols or not. It doesn't matter to me because I don't think there's anything behind it. But some people are offended by that, so I won't do it in their presence and I won't endorse it." Now, Paul had worked through in his own mind, in his own conscience, find out what pleases the Lord, and he thought, "Well, I don't think that offends me." So I'm not going to I'm not going to be troubled by it. 
And I think for some people, I don't know, let's take Harry Potter as an example. Some Christians would be perhaps offended by that and think, oh, I don't want to, don't want to watch that. I don't want my children to watch something that's so heavily into sort of occultic overtones. Other Christians would think, well, it's just a fantasy story. It's not much different to Narnia. You know, what's the difference? It's just, just a story. And I think we have to allow that kind of um, bandwidth because the alternative is that you do then produce legalistic observance uh, and people end up living by rules, which is, I would say, a worse idol than even if people have to, you know, watch something and think, actually, I shouldn't have watched that. It didn't do me a lot of good. Some people have to just find out by, you know, you find out by find out what pleases the Lord, and you, you watch something sometimes, and you're just in your conscience, you know, oh, I wasn't comfortable with that, uh, or going somewhere or doing something, and you sort of think, no, my conscience is affected by that. So I think that's, well, I suppose, slightly different to a broken world. Oh no, 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 no it's not different, is it? Because we have to decide what's broken, don't we? So that we can fix it. Um, so I suppose there is. I would ha- I would try to help people train their consciences. And obviously, the stronger a conscience, the less likely it's going to be offended by legal, what could become legalistic rules. Um, that would, be, but the, the where I get concerned, I think at the moment in the West, and particularly with an emerging generation, is what tends to happen in the church is, as the as the standards of the world take a drop which they do probably every generation, every 10, 20 years. What tends to happen is about 10 years behind that drop, the church then drops its standards to follow where the world has set the new normal. Uh, And so television programmes, for example, 30 years ago, there was a certain standard to them, sort of language you'd hear, the the cinematography you'd see, the things that the themes of the programme would be. So it dropped then perhaps to lowering standards perhaps over a 20-year jump. Ten years after that, Christians then find it acceptable to watch something they'd have never watched ten years before. And the same thing then goes on and on and on. And so I think there is a, there is a spiral downward, and I can see that even in media now, where, and if, yeah, if you talk to uh, millennials, uh, that generation, or generation whatever comes after that, Z or whatever it is, if you talk to them, they would not be offended now at things that their parents would have been offended about 30 years ago. So that's a, that's another big issue to think through. And then who sets the standard? Yeah, because we're talking about being salt and light and then mm. helping to be an example of, of Christ, of mm. not just obviously um, judging things, primarily of, mm. of love, um, yeah. of forgiveness. As church, do should they have this sort of uh, thing set in place to help those in the creative arts to be able to communicate the gospel better in a more clear and concise way? Well, I think one of the things we try to do in relational mission is to connect people who are working in similar fields. So we've got the relational mission business link set up so people in business can then, you know, help each other, pray for each other, as well as, you know, engage in, in some of the apostolic agenda that we've got. I would love to see, I think informally it is happening. We've got people in the arts beginning to connect up with each other and help each other with different things. And I think the more we could facilitate that, the better. People in politics, people in education, people in healthcare. If if we could stimulate little, perhaps organic, informal connections of that kind, I think that would be of mutual benefit to everybody because then you've got someone who understands the kind of things you're wrestling with. And it's not just in the arts. I think there are... People in science or people in medical world or educational world, I think, face even bigger ethical and moral issues than people in the arts, or certainly just as big, because they're sometimes being encouraged to have to do something, say something, teach something, practice something that might go constantly against their conscience as a Christian, but that is their job. I think that's a massive challenge, which is why we need Christians in those environments and at policy-making level to begin to influence the way that legislation is made so we avoid that kind of top-down dysfunction. Do you, do you think, Mike, in terms of these different contexts that we're in and something you were saying a little bit earlier about we, we want to appeal to people's consciences um, so that, that works with a Christian... Um, 
because you can, in a particular way, because you can, uh, you're appealing to Jesus. It w- won't work in quite the same way with someone that's not a Christian. Um, so there's a difference there. Um, but the second part of that would be that that we do need to go beyond that on some issues, though. So if it's you know about a certain TV program, that's that's one kind of more surface level issue. But there are some things that we we would want to say they're not right. So you 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 do sometimes get get drawn into things where you're saying no because scripture says the the works of the flesh are obvious and then it lists out certain things and we would say that is not right. So there would be things to do with violence or abuse that would be the most obvious ones. Where where wouldn't we as a church want to speak publicly, not just and leave it up to people, um, we'd want to say, this isn't right. So there's a there's a distinction, isn't there, between things that are maybe we leave to the conscience and things which we'd say, definitely not, that's not right at all, full stop. Well, it's a debatable area, isn't it? Because I think Paul seemed to say, what business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? You know, in other words, nothing to do with me. Uh, but I will bring judgment and a plumb line to those who are part of God's kingdom and now I think the other so you could push it that way I think when you there are there are other things about being salt and light and being you know city on a hill so we set an example I think it's more about how we would make known that we think this isn't right because if we become another protest group no one is listening no one cares no one's interested and I don't think that's how Jesus behaved. I don't think that's how the early church behaved. They ended up doing something that demonstrated a better way. And I think we can we can have a lot of Christian protest about things, but we haven't actually engaged with people relationally. For me personally, I think Jesus, you know, it says he was a friend of sinners. So I I want to get up close and personal to the people who've got a very different view from me so that I can go engage relationally with them with a view that maybe my influence might even be better understood if it comes from a non-confrontational point of view than it will be if I just stand with some sort of, you know, placard um, making someone feel threatened by my opposing view to what they're saying. Now, I might feel deeply and strongly about the issue I'm talking about, but I think we have to be winsome with people we've got to win people and the best way to win people is to help them do everything to avoid being defensive when we talk to them now this is a controversial point but a podcast should raise controversy but i prefer to i would prefer the befriending route rather than the confrontational route there might come a point when you have to take a stand for sure but I wouldn't want to start there. And I think at the moment, Christians reach far too quickly for the placard, the Facebook post, the con- the, the sort of face-to-face confrontational way of saying what they think. I don't think that wins any anything. It's We are a minority group who are not going to have any influence unless we earn the right and earn a hearing from those who at the moment we might feel need to hear what we have to say. So I think the proverb, you know, even a lizard finds its way into a palace can teach us a lot that we might find that God opens doors of influence. Look at Joseph with Pharaoh. He didn't come with a placard to Pharaoh saying you need to change your economic policy. There was a supernatural door opened where he he helped Pharaoh personally. Daniel, likewise, there there was a personal connection that opened a door of influence and I think, yes, there's a point, you know, if you think of Dietrich Bonhoeffer, you know, had to take a stand in against the... But actually his voice was against the church because it was the church who was giving in to the Nazi agenda. And he said, this is not right because they had the Aryan clause in the church's doctrine. And so it was the church he started agitating to uh, and then it became a broader issue. So I think we have to be careful, pick our battles and recognise people who are not Christians, they, they don't know what we're talking about and we need to be respectful. They've got a right to their own opinion, they've got a right to their own lifestyle and we have to earn the right, I think, to, to bring our uh, influence to bear through um, 
showing them a better way. But that is contro- that is contro- controversial. But I'm happy to do that. No, I think I, I think that's good. Um, that's good in terms of those that don't know Jesus, but the verse that you quoted about do good to all people, especially those in the household of believers. So the brokenness that exists as people come to Jesus and they're in the church. So in that context, though, there there must be a time where we're saying that's not right. So amongst our own church community... Oh, sure, yes. We, we, would, we would speak up. Absolutely, yes. yes. And that's what Paul says. Paul says, what business is it of mine to judge those outside who are not believers? But I do have the right to speak into the church, definitely. Yes, for sure. Yeah. But what I don't what I don't want to do though is give people lists. You can do this, but you can't do that. Because because I, I, I don't I think people then start living from lists. They don't then live by the spirit. You know, live by the spirit, and you will not fulfil the desires of the flesh. There's there's a there's a training of the conscience that's got to take place if we want mature believers rather than just automatons who do what they're given to do. I think there's a d- discussion in the local situation because I think for someone like yourself, Mike, where you're influencing widely and in a way you're you're kind of have, having a voice into lots of local situations from a distance, even through this podcast that people you don't know, you've not met, might be listening. And so giving a kind of list is more cold and could become a just a, a routine or legalism but in your local situation where you've got a local community I think there's a, a call to to discuss these things amongst yourself so that you're you're discerning what the leading of the spirit might be for you in your local setting because it could be that you know Isaac's uh, planning to go abroad um, to South America, we'll be here in the UK. It might be there's situa- things in South America that you have to dis- decide among your community. We won't do that because it's an issue here, or it's there's a con- there's a conscience issue for too many of us. So, I think the power of the local church and discussing together as a community, guided by leaders who not not just laying down a law but actually looking to come to like a unified approach to maybe know that's something we, we've decided not to be involved with together is probably be- better worked out at, at a sort of local level. Mm. Yeah, I mean, obviously it depends on the, on the issue, doesn't it? But obviously there are things that are biblically obvious. So if, if for example, you find in the church that there's a lot of... Um, um, promiscuity going on or people, you know, having sex outside of marriage and that sort of stuff, then obviously there's biblical counsel you bring to that and you say there's some lifestyle issues that need to be adjusted here because it's sinful, it's wrong. Where it's things that the Bible doesn't specifically comment on, I think we have to train people to train their consciences uh, and make godly choices based on having a, a sensitive godly conscience that's trained by constant good use uh, and that that is something to teach into to say to people like, what do, do you think this brings glory to God does this help you does it help those around you etc etc so you can you can still bring teaching and discussion on it without without legislating on behavior when I first um, met my wife uh, who's South American um, I had a lot to learn about the Christian Latin American culture and so one of the things that I very quickly discovered was that if you went to parties you weren't seen as a Christian and if you went to if you were drinking alcohol as well you often not seen as a Christian that's not by everyone but this is just a a general kind of thing obviously me being a DJ being a music producer and doing lots of events and you know I wasn't an alcoholic or anything but I'd have um, some drinks here and there. Um, it was a bit of a shock to me. I had to. I have to be honest. It, it it challenged me as well because I thought to myself, "Am I helping these people with my example?" And it challenged my whole concept of of what my purpose is and whether I'm meant to be a DJ and whether I'm supposed to play certain types of music and songs. And that was a that was a big thing culturally. And so I think, yeah, what, what you were saying there, Adam, from a, a local perspective, perhaps in South America, there will be things that we perhaps won't do, um, at least definitely not not uh, in, in a public scenario, because we wouldn't want people to, to say, oh, well, they're definitely not Christians because they do that. 
I completely agree. And I think there's been other cultures I've been to, worked in, um, and there's certain things that would be a no-no there. And I think, well, I personally would have the freedom of conscience to do that, but I won't do that here because that would actually cause someone to stumble. So I would, And I should be free enough to put it down as well as to pick it up. So you know when something has a lordship over you rather than you over it, when it becomes an offence to you to put it down for someone else's blessing. And I think that's when, you know, you just have to, we have to just make sure that our consciences, our consciences are like very, very fine, you know, compasses. And, and, and a, you know, a magnet here or a magnet there can just skew it. And I do think part of the Christian life, you know, Romans 12, be transformed by the renewing of your mind, is about readjusting the compass just to find out what is the will of God. That's what the Romans 12 is about, isn't it? About, you know, testing, listening, presenting everything as worship. Can I do this to the glory of God? Can I, you know? But if you come from a very legalistic background, as I did, then you tend to see anything that's fun as sin. And so I've had to actually push my conscience the other way sometimes and say, no, this is ridiculous. This is legalistic nonsense. It's got nothing to do with God whatsoever. You know, I was brought up in a home where you couldn't mow the grass or kick a football on or something. What? It's utter nonsense. So I've had to actually force myself to do things as I grew as a Christian that deliberately made me feel guilty for a while until I realised that my conscience needed to be educated to a true freedom and a true sense of godliness, not self-imposed rules and regulations. And I would say that in some in some cultures need educating as to what is, you know, what is a real heart of sin. What is sin, rather than just what is? Because we can make ourselves feel righteous by doing something, can't we? And then we've sinned in another way. <laughs> it, Mike, in uh, in the book, you you say this. You say we must never switch in our thinking to just internal issues, the vast majority of all our expenditure must go on benefiting those who do not yet know Christ. Is, is that really true? I mean, it's a, it's, a, it's a sort of a, it's a powerful statement, but like in, in our family of churches, in our church, I mean, most of the money is going to be going on our own stuff, staffing, training, paying our bills, and if you put that alongside the the call to look after the church and believers first, how, how can that statement be true? Or is that is that a kind of a bit of a pushback statement? You're just challenging our thinking. Well, I can remember, uh, and I won't name names because I haven't asked them permission, but I can remember a, um, uh, uh, a church leader who was embarking on a very, very... Um, uh, a very big building project and, uh, you know, several million pounds. And uh, I remember him making this statement. He said, I couldn't possibly justify spending this amount of money unless I'd made an internal commitment that over the coming years I'm going to budget or allocate or aim to spend exactly the same amount of money, if not more, on the poor. And I thought that was quite a provoking way of thinking, mission now sometimes we do need to build infrastructure staffing all that kind of stuff but if it becomes if the river is just all flowing inward and that there isn't just as big a river flowing outward because of the infrastructure we've we've invested in then i think something's gone wrong now obviously we do need to have staff buildings or whatever we don't pay people a pittance either we give you know we look after people and we do need to you know, if it's the difference between buying a new computer or a second-hand one, because that'll do. I don't believe in scrimping like that. I think it was Spurgeon who met a fellow minister on the train station and uh, the man said to him, oh, I'm travelling third class to save the Lord's money. And Spurgeon quipped back at him, well, I'm travelling first class to save the Lord's servant. And I thought that was a brilliant quip, because he was saying you don't have to put yourself through suffering you know, it's a false economy. God's got loads of money. Doesn't you know? Doesn't need us to sort of impoverish ourselves. But it's more about the focus of our missions. Got to be surely investing in what as yet is not done, rather than what is done. That's I think the point I was trying to make. It might have been a bit of a pushback statement, maybe. Yeah, because I think it it's it's challenging. Because I mean, we all we all know for men most churches it that 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 wouldn't reflect on the budget sheet for many because inevitably 
um, things like staffing costs and, and buildings and bills would on the pie chart are going to take the biggest chunk and to and to to shift that or to even equal that would require basically d- doubling mm. your income i'm not saying every church it's the same but but for a vast majority that that would be true wouldn't it yeah but you can also have a long term view so sometimes there are seasons where you have to invest in the local to build an infrastructure to then over the next 10 15 20 years have a have a bigger impact globally that you wouldn't have had to do if you hadn't invested first so it's not about keeping it all balanced every year i think it's about sometimes it's about investing to then you know have a greater expansion yeah because i think because i think going back to the bigger purpose of the chapter which is about not not the poor so if i'm hearing you right it's not just let's make sure we're giving a lot of money to people that don't have much money um mm. it's about a broken world it's about all these areas and contexts in society where then you could then draw an argument that if you are putting money into something that's helping to train people up you you are helping indirectly the poor and because you're you're training people you're you're helping the church to mature those people are then going to in turn trigger a difference so it's it's difficult to measure it as a yeah the money goes there there we're doing it it's far more complex than that. Absolutely. And I think even with, say, for example, with, with business, I mean, we, we've set up this Relational Mission Business Link now because we want to honour and bless those who've got gifts of entrepreneurial skills where they are very good at creating wealth. Uh, that's not a bad thing. That's a good thing. And I think creating wealth, obviously, where you apply that to a situation of poverty or of, you know, thinking about COVID at the moment, even in the UK and some of the Western nations of Europe, there's going to be a lot of economic um, devastation because of uh, the pandemic. We want to empower Christian businesses and business leaders to be able to right, get be on the front foot of starting business, helping people start business, doing all this kind of stuff. So... Um, you know, it's not just about focusing just on the poor, it's about focusing on those who've got the skills to bring about uh, change in society that will benefit the poor and everyone else for that matter. So it's it, the broken, fixing the broken, yeah, Church for a Broken World is about the very wealthy and the very poor, for sure. Yeah, Mike, you also talk about the church and in terms of businesses, combining business with social justice projects and things like that. Um, if you're a small church and you don't perhaps have any businesses that are run by Christians, uh, is there any kind of um, help in terms of the, the those churches being trained or, or being taught how to connect with local businesses to perhaps start joint ventures so they can still influence um, the, the, their local community? Well, I think it's a case then of one of the benefits of a fa- being a family of churches is you can then talk to other churches who are, are some way down the track with that, who might even have resources and people who could help a local church begin that journey. So I think it's about connecting uh, across the... I'm always amazed when I get to know across the family of churches now, I suddenly find, well, we've got this person and that person and this person who are massively influential in some some sort of arena of life that I didn't even know they were there. And you hear, goodness, they really are, I don't know, world leaders in some cases. I, I, I can think of a number of people we have in our midst who are world leaders in their field. And they're in our family of churches. So, And I don't even know they're all there. I sort of find out about it as I go along. So I think one of the good things that a local church eldership can do is to try and expose the church to other churches in relational mission and get to know what gifts and ministries there are out there. Because sometimes that can just be such a help if you're trying to stimulate an area of growth in the church to bring someone in who's a real expert in it. And uh, I know we've probably nearly done for the time, but I've got, I've got two more questions um, or, or one, two more points. Uh, and one is that, um, that you know, you mentioned in a book about it, it being something that we're, we're tasked to do to help those in need, to help empower the poor, to help in this broken world. So it's about obedience, right, Mike? Yes, it is. So I don't think, I think what I wanted to try and get across in, in that chapter was Working with the poor, it's a bit like the same thing with corporate prayer. It's not for those who are called to pray and others aren't. We're all called to pray. Working with the poor is not a specialism. It's not a department. It is something that every local church and every believer must 
do. It's a commission of God. We are to care for the poor, empower the poor, and we are also to be salt and light in our business uh, and our workplaces and in the way we go about our civil civic duties. It is about obedience to the things that God wants us to do as his ambassadors. So it's not something, if it becomes a department, we've missed it big time. And so the, the final point, Mike, was that um, not to really just restrict this to, to church activities, business activities, but things as simple as your local social groups. So there's a great opportunity, um, I think, just within the things that people do naturally, the, the things that they are passionate about, whether that's football, golf, tennis, cooking, where people can be salt and light, be that, be that um, example to the broken world. And then also there's opportunities for the, those groups of friends to also be a part of something that's a social justice. Mm. I mean, there's a, there's a wonderful little summary of how over the last 30 or so, 30, 40 years, um, presentation of the gospel or ways to reach the gospel in the West has changed. I, I don't know who first coined it, so I, I, whoever it was, I apologise for using it, and I'll happily credit them on a future podcast. But, for example, it's, it's said or observed that, say, in the 50s and 60s, you would get someone like a Billy Graham, and the way you'd reach people was you'd tell them a message, then you'd introduce them to a community of people, the church, then you'd um, engage them in a cause, you'd get them serving. Probably in the sort of 80s, 90s, with the advent of sort of Willow Creek, seeker-sensitive stuff, firstly, you'd introduce people to a family of believers, so you'd create an, uh, a contact surface area with people, that people thought, oh, this church is good, I, you know, I, I can relate here. Then you'd tell them the gospel, then you'd en enlist them in a cause. Now, I would say that in the West, in many cases... The first route into people's hearts is to engage them in a cause first, something that means something to them, something they feel they can make a difference in the world in, be it social change or be it something like a hobby or something where you feel you're really helping other people and benefiting other people. Then you introduce people to a community, then you tell them the gospel. Now, I'm not saying those are hard and fast or even that whether they're correct but I do think as a sociological observation, it is accurate. And it is certainly the way that um, many people are finding fruitfulness in terms of communicating the gospel. They're actually showing by their deeds first, building trust, building credibility, building authenticity, building vulnerability, then introducing you know, their friends to you know, people who don't know the Lord, and then earning the right to speak the gospel to them. I think there's something to be said for that, which I'm kind of backing up what you're saying, that engagement with people at community level is really important as long as we don't miss that third last step, which is being willing to tell them the gospel. Otherwise, what does it, matter, what does it benefit someone if they gain the whole world but yet lose their soul? So I think that's what we've got to be careful of. But I do think that routine is, is, is a valid one particularly in the, in the secular, humanistic, sceptical West that we are living in. I don't think it applies globally in many of the contexts we're working in as well. You can, you, you can approach different things in different ways there. But in the West, I think that is a valid observation that you're making. Just some verses that I recently read, which maybe sum up the, the heart of God that Mike's touched on in, in Psalm 68. I, I was struck by the fact that these verses are are written, it's, they're in the Old Testament, so they're before Jesus, before a lot of the, the teaching that comes from the New Testament. But yet yet here, David has already understood God, that the, this powerful God who led armies and who's performing miracles in the wilderness and so on. David already understood God in this way, that, that God in, in his holy place, so God in his most pure and perfect dwelling says that he's a father to the fatherless he is a a protector of widows he is someone who leads the prisoners out into freedom and he's someone that settles the lonely in homes and families and I thought wow you know that David understood that 
even at that stage, that, that that was the God that he served. And I think when when we remind ourselves of that, suddenly you get a sense of, yes, yeah, God's not changed. It doesn't matter who 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 the person is, God in his core is is a God who who wants to be with them if they're lonely, if they're fatherless or widows or prisoners. His, his heart is always going out to those people, regardless of the technicalities around, you know, is it church or Christian and which order do you do things? That's what God is like. And so we're, we're to be like him. Yeah, he loves people. He wants to do them good. And that, that, that's not separating the gospel into a bit of information they've got to know at the end. It's like we we live it and then tell them why we're doing that because we're just trying to demonstrate how God feels. He just wants to relate a relationship with people to bless them, exactly as you say, Adam. I mean, it's understanding God is so good and kind and loving towards people. His, his heart's moved when anyone's suffering in any way or when dysfunctionality, brokenness in the world is evident. He's so deeply moved by that. I think we've got to capture that in, a, in order for our actions to then somehow come with just a little bit of, of a way of being ambassadors and representing him well, for sure. It's a good point. Very good. Yeah, that was great. Fantastic, yeah. Thanks so much, Adam. Thank you so much, Mike. Thank you. It's been a good, stimulating conversation. I'm sure there'll be um, more to discuss on this in coming coming days. Yeah, good to chat with you both. Thanks, Isaac yeah. and Mike. God bless you all. Have a lovely rest of the day. Yeah, bless you. Thanks, guys. See you. Bye. We hope you've enjoyed this podcast. Do get in touch and connect with us via Facebook, Instagram and Twitter at RM Churches. For more information, you can also go to the website www.relationalmission.org.